You can go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And even as I say those words, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, I wonder if you instantly know that verse offhand. This single verse is famous, and it's become almost a cliche that's used in the Christian life and even by unbelievers. Um, This is a verse that is stitched onto pillows, it's put onto mugs, it's tattooed onto bodies. You say the verse itself, Romans 8, 28, and you know instantly what it says. And it's important that we understand why Paul says what he says in Romans 8, 28, and why it's situated exactly where it is in Romans 8. You see, what Paul has been doing in Romans 8 is building a case, and here, Romans 8, 28 through 30, functions as the conclusion of Paul's argument that he has been presenting to us essentially that that future glory outweighs present suffering. That's the argument he's been making, that what awaits believers in Jesus Christ is so much better, it's so much greater than any of the sufferings we may experience here and now. And he says these words now in order to strengthen and conclude and to build confidence in his people. And he does so, listen, really importantly here, as a pastor speaking to people, he does so to provide comfort to people who are in immense suffering and confusion. I want to back up and I want to read verse 26 through verse 30, so we get the context. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified." One of the more common responses to suffering, as we've been talking about this the past few weeks, is to think that somehow in our suffering, God has forgotten about us or He's abandoned us. And in the midst of suffering, we can often lack comfort because we have decided in our suffering to throw a vote of non-confidence toward God. In other words, we start to believe that God doesn't really know what he's doing. Maybe, maybe God isn't in control the way I thought he was. This is a common hang-up for people who are trying to look at and understand the Christian faith. It's a common objection to the Christian faith, right? If God is good, how can suffering and evil even exist? And while no Christian truly believes that, In the midst of suffering, there is this inclination of our heart to actually get ourselves to that kind of a place. We personalize our hurt and pain so much so that we can say, God, if if you are really good, how can you allow your child to suffer like this? 
Romans 8.28 comes into the picture now in full view. You see, these verses that we have just read are given to us in the very context of suffering. But the thing that we need to ask here is, is why exactly did Paul place it here specifically? Why is it placed directly after verse 27? Remember where we were last week? We're talking about the groanings of creation and of believers, and we landed on this place where the Spirit of God actually groans with the groaning too deep for words. He he ministers and prays to God on our behalf. And one of the things we see at the end of verse 27 is that the Spirit of God is actually praying the will of God for us. So you see what Paul is doing here, it's so magnificent. He's answering this question for us. Well, what exactly, especially in the midst of our suffering, is the will of God for us? He's telling us right here what the will of God is for our lives. And Paul, in doing so, he adds another element to bring further comfort and security to believers who are suffering. He tells us that it's all about, in one sense, knowing and believing and living in light of the sovereignty of God, that God is truly directing all things according to the counsel of His will. And he intends for these truths to to provide incredible comfort to our souls. I love what R.A. Torrey wrote. He said this, The sovereignty of God is a soft pillow for the weary heart. You see, even though we suffer, and maybe especially when we suffer, we can have confidence in the sovereignty of God. And in order to strengthen that confidence and, and thereby increase our comfort, I want to look at three aspects of God's sovereignty from this passage this morning. First, I want you to notice this, that our comfort comes from our confidence that the promise of God's sovereignty is good. It's good. And Paul, in verse 28, he says this, and we know, listen to the confidence in that statement, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. This is essentially what the whole Bible is about. It's about the promise of God, and it's about the good promise of God. And undergirding that promise, bankrolling that promise, is the reality and knowledge of the sovereignty of God who can actually fulfill the very promise that He's made. We see this promise being fleshed out right from the very beginning of Scripture, the promise of Genesis 3.15 that one day, one day, God is going to send someone who is going to put an end to the curse that has ruined this earth that has caused this earth, as we saw last week, to to groan and to long and to wait for the redemption of the sons of God, the glory of the sons of God to be revealed. The creation groans, the church, believers, we are groaning for this day, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they're all groaning, listen, for the will of God to be accomplished, for the promise of God to be fully and finally fulfilled. We are all waiting for the day when all of the curse in this world will be turned into blessing, where what is broken will be made beautiful again. It's in this context that Paul is telling us where comfort can actually be found. In this promise of God, there is comfort. 
The gospel, this good news, this promise of salvation is so radical. Christian, listen to this. It's so radical in its scope that it not only addresses the very personal suffering in your life, but the suffering of the whole world, the cosmos. And it swallows it up, and it even uses the current sufferings of this world and your life for good. We need to pull this apart to really grasp what Paul is trying to communicate to us because we can read this verse and it becomes so cliche that we miss the intricacies and the complexities and the importance of what Paul is trying to establish in our hearts and minds. First, I want you to notice that that he says all things work together for good. All things, not some things, not certain things, all things. That means that he's talking about the good things in your life, the bad things in your life, the ugly things in your life. And by the way, when Paul says all things here, as Romans 8 is confirming, listen, bad, hard, and painful things will happen to you. But far from being inconsistent with our salvation, they actually will contribute to our good and to our ultimate salvation. Every single thing in a believer's life, a stubbed toe, a cancer diagnosis, a a disobedient or rebellious child, a prolonged singleness, a world war, a global pandemic, all things, he says, are working together for the good that God has intended. And one of the greatest biblical illustrations of this is the life of Joseph, isn't it? Anytime you think you've got a bad and you think you're suffering, you you can think of people like Job or Joseph. I mean, just think of Joseph's life for a moment. Everything started off really great. He's given a really cool coat from his dad. And everything begins to go downhill from that very moment. His older brothers hate him with a passion that is so deep that they, they throw him into a pit. They want to leave him for dead, but instead they decide they'd they'd, they'd be nice to him and they'd sell him off into slavery. His, His life goes from bad to worse as he's brought into slavery, into a foreign land. In that foreign land, as you know the story, he does good, but every time he does good and you think, well, surely he's going to prosper now, something bad seems to happen. He gets thrown into prison. He gets abandoned by people who said they were going to come to his rescue But in all of that, in all of the suffering that he experienced in his life, as we know the story, as we're able to zoom out and we know the end of the story, we can see so clearly in the life of Joseph, can't we, that God was indeed working all things through all of his suffering, through all of his pain and all of his hardships. He was directing it towards an intended goal and end, and it was good. It all accomplished Not only, listen, in Joseph's life, the the salvation of his own family, but the salvation of a nation, and eventually it would become the means by which God would bring about the salvation of the entire world through the very promise of Genesis 3.15. You see, loved ones, listen, the darkest experience in your life can be the place where God meets you most deeply. It can be the place where he transforms you most mightily and sets you on a course to be used most powerfully. The thing that we don't understand is often the very thing that God is using to do his greatest work in our lives and maybe even through our lives. But I know how you feel, especially if you're suffering this morning. From your standpoint, all things you know, seemingly seem to be working towards your affliction. 
But look what Paul says next. He says, all things, they work together for your good. And I love that idea here of of working because sometimes we're confused about what this means and we need to see how God understands this idea of working. This is not some kind of a hopeful optimism. You know, I I, I really hope this works. We'll give it a try and see, see if it happens. It's not a general axiom as if it always tends to work this way. Most of the time it tends to work. No, this is the strategic, careful, calculated, working energy of God that has an intended result that will come to fruition. I don't know about you. Um, I'm not a great multitasker. I think most of us aren't great multitaskers, but... Maybe that's you. Most, most people aren't really good at multitasking. I wonder how many things you can do at once. I think about the limited amount of things I can do at one time and actually give the proper attention to. And the reality is, in all multitasking, in some way, something you're trying to give attention to suffers to some degree. You can't do it to the greatest degree, the, the maximum capacity. And I want you to think about this. Because God is looking at the universe and he is seeing every single person, every single event, at every single moment in time, and he is multitasking to the perfect degree, everything being carefully orchestrated in such a way as to bring about the exact results at the exact moment in time in every single situation in the universe. Compared to God, the greatest human multitasker simply looks like a circus clown on a unicycle juggling bowling pins and holding a stack of plates on their head. And while that seems pretty impressive, I mean, that's, that is pretty impressive, you're still a clown, and you can't compare to God. No offense to any professional clowns out there. Most of us can barely do one thing at a time really, really well. God is working all things in the universe perfectly towards their intended end, and he's working them together. I love this picture. We think single-mindedly. He's not working separately. You know, we're so tunnel-visioned on our life, on our circumstances. We tend to only see, even in our own existence, one aspect of our, our life at a time, or, or maybe a few. And we definitely struggle to see how they might intersect and, and work together. We tend to isolate things from each other. We stare at one puzzle piece and we're confused because we can't see all the other pieces and the piece we hold in our hand is actually flipped upside down and we don't even know what the picture on the box is supposed to look like. But God does. God is the only one who can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He can take not just every individual thing but all evil things collectively. Listen, all of the wickedness in this world, all of the the evil, the abuse, the abandonment, the, the rape, the anger, the racism, the sexism, and you name it, he's able to take them and to weave them into this tapestry for the good of his people. None of those things get to be Lord of the universe. They certainly don't get to be Lord of your life. We see this even in the story of Joseph, right? The very end of his life with all of the the evil, as he, he looks at his brothers, he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is the sovereignty of God. 
But here perhaps is maybe the most important question for us to answer. What is good? What exactly does good mean? And does our definition of good match God's definition of good? Does good mean some kind of materialistic or circumstantial goods? Does it imply some temporary goods, some earthly goods, some selfishly motivated good? You see, because if if you interpret good like this, then you are going to end up being a very miserable Christian. Because you thought that it meant that God would never let anything happen to you that would affect those things, right? If you define good by all these other things, like, God, I have to get this job, or I have to have a, a child, or I have to have a spouse, or, or the car, or the money, or the good life, however you choose to define it. And when you don't get that thing, it seems like God is not delivering on the promise that you think he's made to you. And you get angry with God. You blame God for not coming through on what you thought he promised. But you see, the context of Romans 8 does not allow for an interpretation like that. Just look at what's coming next in this passage. If if you define the good life like that, listen to what he says in in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That doesn't sound very good. That is if you don't understand God's definition of good. He's saying that in light of Romans 8, listen, the whole world is suffering, and for the Christian, it actually may get worse yet. But God is indeed working all things together for good. It is good as God defines it, which is ultimate good. There is a future eternal reality that Paul is holding out to us. He doesn't want us to be, to be just simply transfixed with a temporal earthly good. He wants us to have a longer view of our own existence, and he wants us to see that what we experience here and now is so short It's so minuscule and in some senses so trivial in comparison to the good that awaits the follower of Jesus Christ. And he's going to actually define this good in just a moment in verse 29 and even into 30, but you'll have to just hang on and we'll get there in a second. But to fully grasp this idea of understanding the the goodness of God and the good that God has for you, I just want to encourage you, all you need to really do is, is look to the cross. You see, if we look at at the life of Jesus, especially as he marched towards the cross, we can look at all of the suffering, all of the mockery and the scorn, all of the pain that he had to endure, and we can look at this from a human perspective and say, certainly this isn't good. And as he hung on the cross, I mean, just consider as the wrath of God was unleashed upon him. does, Does that seem good? From a human perspective, no, but we understand, listen, that the the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross was indeed the greatest good that the world has ever known, and it would result in the greatest good we could possibly know, the very redemption of our souls. Don't miss this. I want you to see that the promise that is made here in this verse is only for those who love God. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse 28? 
And it's important to understand that because many in the world, many unbelievers have hijacked this promise and tried to assume it for themselves. You hear things like this in the world, everything happens for a reason, that's Romans 8.28. Or it's all going to work out in the end, that's a hijacking of Romans 8.28. See, I need to be very clear on this, if you don't love God, that's not true for you. Paul is not expressing a a general superficial kind of optimism that everything tends to, everybody's good in the end, that it's all going to work out for every single person in the end. We need to be clear on what the Bible teaches here. Listen, if you do not love God, all things are leading not towards your final salvation, but your final destruction. They are not leading towards what is good for you. They are leading towards what is devastating for you. This promise here in Romans 8, 28 is for those who love God. That's another way that Paul is trying to describe and define a believer in Jesus Christ. You see, the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ is that they love God. What does it mean to love God? It, It doesn't simply mean a fleeting emotion nor does it simply mean intellectual affirmation of certain truths, nor is it a love for the gifts that God gives, a love for the fact that God gives blessings to people. We've all had those kind of relationships. I've even seen this in in every single one of my children at very young ages, asking them, "What, what is it that you love about daddy? And inevitably, at a very young age, the first thing that comes to them is, will you give me good things? I'll come home from work, from the office, and uh, we have a little candy bowl in the office that I, I kind of grab a few candies on the way out the door, and I, I give them to my kids, and, and when I get home, and, and I've somehow trained um, my youngest child to run to the door, and while I walk in the door expecting to hear, Daddy, I love you, I, I hear this, Daddy, did you bring me candy? Like I'm some kind of a vending machine. And of course... Our loving Father gives good gifts to His children, but if we simply love the gifts and not the giver, then we are not followers of Jesus Christ. Love is seen in true surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Love is seen, biblically speaking, that we would lay down our lives to follow Jesus as our Savior and our King. Love, from our vantage point, scripturally speaking, is believing that He loved us so much that He gave everything for us, that He died for us in our place, and in response to this great love, we gladly die to ourselves. We bow the knee to Him in in humble, lifelong obedience. God has called you to that kind of love, and if you truly love God like that, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then this promise is true for you. You can have comfort in the confidence that the promise of God's sovereignty is so very good for you. Secondly, notice this, the purpose of God's sovereignty is glorious. Here we see That the good that Paul spoke about is actually developed and unfolded for us. He says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
You see what Paul does here as he defines good? He defines it as making every person like Jesus Christ. You see, what, what, this, this pain that I'm experiencing, this can't be good, can it? Well, maybe. If it's making you more like Jesus Christ, well, this, this, this relational strife I'm experiencing, this can't, be, this can't be for my good, can it? Well, maybe. Maybe if it's making you more like Jesus Christ, this physical pain or this diagnosis that I've, I've just received, it's, it's not for my good, is it? Well, maybe if, it, if it's working you out, making you look more like Jesus Christ, this persecution, this certainly can't be good. If it makes you like Jesus Christ, it is. You see, the way God defines good, this is so important. You want to know God's definition of good? Jesus. That's the definition of good that we get. It's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is is perfect and holy and righteousness. He is the definition of good. He is beautiful and gracious and merciful and true. And he is the, the one who is pure and perfect in every way. And so we look at Jesus and what we see is the definition of what it means to be good. And especially in his glorified state right now at the right hand of the Father as he radiates the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the earth, it is a display of what is truly and perfectly good. And there is nothing that can match that kind of goodness. It is glorious. We follow God, as I said before, not for circumstantial and temporal blessings. We love him and obey him because we worship him. Listen, church, this is the most important part here, and we want to be like him. Not just when it's easy, not just when things are going our way, not just when our life is stable and we, we, we see the security in very tangible ways, but in the midst of suffering, when our life seems to be falling apart, when everything hurts and we don't understand why. We want those moments to be the crucible of our sanctification, the the point in our lives where God can do more and expedite the growth in our lives to make us, while we live on this earth, look more like Jesus Christ so that we can radiate his glory and display him in the midst of this dark and dying world. Think about Job. He serves for us as an incredible example of how to suffer so well And how to even suffer when everything temporal and earthly is stripped away from you. Remember, Satan's main kind of argument and thesis against Job is that all religious interest is ultimately grounded in self-interest. This is what what Satan assumes. All religious interest is ultimately grounded in self-interest, right? God, Job only loves you because of how you have blessed him. And what we see, as God allows Satan to systematically strip away all of the the creature comforts of life, all of the most joyful pieces of earthly existence, as they're systematically dismantled and ruined in his life, we see that Job is sustained in his suffering by God himself. He is not instantly removed from his suffering 
He is sustained in the midst of it. And in the end, he is better because of it. Christian, your comfort and joy cannot be placed in material circumstances because they can be taken away from you. They can't be placed in an earthly person, relationship, possession, because if they are, when those things are stripped away, it will devastate your world. The joy and comfort you find, listen, in conformity to Christ cannot be taken away from you. That's what Paul is establishing for us. The promise that you will see him one day and be made fully like him one day, that promise cannot be taken away from you. And that is what God intends for you to experience even in the midst of suffering. But let's be honest, we often have a different timetable than God when it comes to our suffering and what God is wanting to do in it. We often want to rush through the suffering, and I'm not saying we need to enjoy the suffering itself or long for for suffering. That's nothing noble in that. But when we expect suffering and we live in suffering, oftentimes we can try to rush through the suffering without learning what God is trying to teach us. We think delays are always bad. We assume wrongly that if God is going to do anything with his plan, it's got to happen now. One frustrated pastor was praying with another, and as he prayed about circumstances in his life, he was asking God to do something for him, and, and in, after they had finished praying, his friend looked at him and said, why are you so frustrated? And his answer was, because I'm in a hurry and God's not. Any delay we think, is God not making good on his promises? But we don't see the end from the beginning, and we don't have the same perspective as God. And one day, listen, one day we're going to stand in the presence of God and he will ever so graciously reveal his plan to us and every mouth will be stopped. Every time we've been inclined to say, God, why? Why, God? Why not now? Why are you allowing this? Every time we've ever thought that or said that out loud, listen, one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to see the whole plan. We're going to see God's perspective and we're going to stand there silent and say, wow, look what you were doing. We're going to stand amazed in wonder and in awe. So what do we do now? Well, we don't have that perspective. What do we do now as we wrestle through suffering and we experience pain and trials and difficulty? Here's what we do. We wrestle to bring our thoughts and emotions and feelings in line with the word of God. We search the scriptures. We pray the scriptures. We sing the scriptures. We believe the scriptures so that our souls will be comforted by the promise that our God is indeed sovereign. We look from cover to cover, and we see that God is in absolute control, that nothing happens outside of his divine purposes and plan, and that God is indeed working all things toward their intended end and goal, which is for our good and his glory. How do we see this in our lives? How do we know this is where we're living I'll tell you how we know it's where we're not living. If your life is consumed by complaining, by grumbling and criticizing, listen, especially when it comes to your circumstances and your suffering, here's what's happening. You're essentially grumbling and complaining and criticizing God. You're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. Why don't you do what I think is best, God? You're assuming You know better than God. But listen, here's how you know that you are, you are in the right place, not when you're grumbling and complaining. Sure, you may be groaning. 
But when even in the midst of suffering, you're thankful. And even in the midst of suffering, you're depending more upon God. You're leaning into him. You're trusting his goodness, his grace, and you're responding in a way that reflects Jesus Christ himself. And even, even in the midst of suffering, you find your heart praising God for who he is in his kindness, his grace, and his love towards you. You can say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God's sovereign purpose in our suffering is glorious. Be confident that God knows what he's doing, even if you don't. Find comfort in conformity to Christ and comfort in believing. Finally, listen, that the power of God's sovereignty is great. Part of what Paul wants us to see here is how truly magnificent the power of God is to accomplish all that he's promised. And what he does here in verse 29 and 30 is he, he expands on the, the glorious purpose and he gives us what theologians have coined uh, the golden chain. He links together these ideas, these doctrines, and he's, he's zooming out to give us more perspective. And what we see, again, listen, it's the overwhelming power of God on display in our salvation. That's what this chain shows us. It shows us the unmatched and unbreakable power of God to accomplish his good purposes. And he gives us five links in this golden chain. I want to break these down one by one and just quickly dissect them and hopefully encourage you with not only the promise and the purpose of God, but with the very power of God to accomplish these things. He says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Grab a hold of that word, foreknew. What exactly does this word mean? Well, it, it doesn't mean that God knows simply facts in advance. Or that, that God chooses people because he knows as he looks down to the corridors of time that they're going to eventually choose him. The idea of, of knowledge that's built into this word here, it's, it's not so much a cognitive understanding, knowing facts. It carries with it a more personal and intimate relationship. And, and what it ultimately means is that God... He set his love on a particular people. He foreknew them. And the ones who were called out and chosen. See, how can you be so sure of this interpretation? Like, why would you choose that as your interpretation? Because this word has an Old Testament context. The idea of, of knowing the way Paul uses it here is built into the very Bible that Paul read, the Old Testament. And it's a word that's used repeatedly throughout the scriptures to describe intimate love, even sexual union. Let me give you an example. Right, the very first time this word is used is in Genesis 4, verse 1, where it says that Adam knew his wife and they gave birth to a child. And this concept is, is throughout the scriptures, especially as it applies to God's people and the nation of Israel. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It'll be up on your screen. He says this to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, look at this, set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
Let me give you another one. Amos 3 verse 2 says this, You only have I known of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquity. He's talking about the, the, the reality of their judgment because of the intimacy of relationship, of how they, they know each other so intimately and deeply. Listen to this. This one's not on your screen. Hosea 13, four, uh, 13 verse 4 and 5 says this, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, It's the same idea in John 13. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. To be foreknown, listen, loved ones, it is to be foreloved. It means he set his love on this particular people, as Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5. Paul writes these words. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That is an exact parallel of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. And it means that before, listen, this is so important to grasp. Here's where your confidence comes from. Here's where your, your comfort comes from. Before you were born, before there was a country called Canada or a continent called North America, before there was a Middle East and a, a Garden of Eden, before any material matter had ever been created and brought into existence, listen, you were loved in the heart and mind of God. And every day leading up till now, you have been loved by God. And God has been aiming to come and get you in love. And one day, one day soon, you will enjoy the fullness of that love. Not only did he foreknew you, foreknow you, he also, it says here, predestined you. The definition is actually in the word itself. You were destined previously. Maybe you do meal prep through the week, or maybe you get things ready in advance for a, a big family meal that's coming up, you know, the next day. The idea here is that you prepare certain things beforehand. You make them in advance. And you see what this is telling us is that God decides what is going to happen to you for all eternity in advance of your entire life. Before you've ever taken a breath. Before you've ever done anything right or wrong. And by the way, he's going to, I understand right now we can't get into all the nuts and bolts. And I understand there are questions that this causes. Paul is going to actually start tackling some of those in Romans chapter 9. But here, his goal is, is not simply theological. It's not simply intellectual. Listen, it's pastoral. He wants you to be comforted by this reality. Those whom he loved, he also predestined. I get it. It causes questions to rise in our minds. Well, what about my responsibility? What about my decisions? Is this simply fatalism or determinism? No. No, and this often trips people up. It's either people we think like this. It's either God is sovereign and my choices don't matter, or I'm making my choices and everything is open and God is 
completely contingent. Not imagining for a moment, listen, that God actually works through our choices and in a way that is compatible. Yes, there's, there's incredible tension and there's things that our finite minds do not completely understand, but we should expect that because we are not God. These doctrines in Romans 8 through 9 and elsewhere, listen, they in no way diminish human responsibility. We need to embrace and live in this tension, but they do emphasize God's sovereignty over all things. One author says it like this, clearly a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christian, but it is God's decision before it can be ours. This is not to deny that we decided for Christ and freely, but to affirm that we did so only because he first decided for us. You say, well, doesn't this mean that less people will be saved? No. No, predestination means there's more people being saved than there would have been otherwise. Why? Because humanity is so wicked, humanity is so sinful that the only way they could be saved and rescued is that God would choose to come and save them, that their sinfulness was so deep and so wretched, our human sinfulness, the depravity was so great. Listen, that as Paul said in Romans 3, there are none who seek God. Our only hope is that God would seek us. And those who are predestined are also, notice this next, called. This is what theologians call the effectual calling of God. Not, I I tried to call you and and weren't sure if you were going to answer. It's more like a fisherman who casts a net into the sea, and as he draws the net in, he draws the fish up and into the boat. It's, it's more like this, when God spoke into the darkness, let there be light, boom, there was light. Or when, when Jesus stood outside the grave of Lazarus, and he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and in that very instant, the dead body of Lazarus, the heart began to beat, the tissues and the sinews begin to form, the blood begins to pump, the lungs fill with air, and he walks out alive. It's that kind of calling And this is what happens, the Bible says, to every single Christian who's ever been saved. They they heard the gospel proclaimed with power, and one day, one day, it struck them. It was so beautiful, it was so real, and it was so undeniable and irresistible that in that moment, you heard it proclaimed in power, you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you confessed that you were a sinner, and you clung to the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. You were drawn to him. He called you. And you responded to it with the obedience of faith. That's why what he says next here is that those who are called were also justified. You see, God's effective call enables you to believe in him. And those who believe are justified by faith. This has been the very heart and thesis of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. 
Righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. You see, this has been the argument Paul has been making. The gospel makes you right with God. Just as if you never sinned, just as if you always obeyed, in that moment you believed, you are justified before God, you stand robed in the righteousness of Christ, and we're reminded, listen, that as we look at the cross, Jesus takes a a hell's worth of wrath so that we can have an eternity's worth of heaven. And that's where this unbreakable golden chain is leading where we see the power of God's sovereignty on full display for those he justified, he also, listen, glorified. See, well, that's in the future, right? Yes. But did you notice how Paul writes this here? He writes in the present tense. Why? Because it's as good as done. That's the power of God. It's like it's already, it's as good as done. Our destiny is to be given, listen, new bodies in a new world, both of which will be transfigured with the glory of God. You being glorified, listen, one day, one day you will actually look at Jesus and be made like him in radiant, blazing glory. You will share his glory. And in the mind of God, listen, that is minutes away from right now. And it's as good as done for the believer. Everything that needed to be secured for you to be glorified has already been done. Your suffering is just for a little while. Glory is as good as done. Christian, have confidence. Take comfort. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus Even in your weakness and suffering, God is working out his will and will bring you all the way home. It's as good as done. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things. We thank you that you, God, in the midst of our suffering, will never leave or forsake us, that you have not left or abandoned us, but God, instead, you are right by our side, and not only that, you are working in the midst, Lord, of even our hardest moments. God, you're working all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And Father, we are convinced, we are confident that you are able to do what you have promised to do. And as we look towards that future day where we will experience the fullness of that promise being realized, God, we pray that we would press on in faith now, that we would do so, Lord, with hearts that are comforted by the truth of your sovereignty, by the goodness of your grace. Give us a joy, Lord, even in the midst of our sorrow. May, Lord, we we know that our comfort, our joy does not come from the circumstances of this life. It comes in our conformity to Jesus Christ and being made like him here and now and one day in fullness on a day that is soon to come. We submit ourselves to you now, strengthen our faith, and receive our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.